Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI-audio's on-air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. So every year at this time, we get into that conversation of when can you start saying, hey, we're into the Christmas season? Well, for all of us, Ramya, here on Kelly and Company, it's really when you start putting together the Christmas show that we're doing this year on the 23rd of December. Going on, all the testing, all the getting set up for our launch on TV, things are a little more compressed, but... Will you take a couple of moments and share with people what we have cooking, what's going on as we will be preparing that show. And it'll be a random show, folks. Make note, on the 23rd, uh, we will have stopped producing Kelly and Company Productions uh, as of the 9th. You know, 2 to 4 p.m. is still Kelly and Company time on AMI-audio. But the 23rd is very special for us. And this show is going to repeat, by the way, 24th and 25th. So your holidays will kick off with our um, Christmas show. So anyway, there always is uh, music, food talk, and showcases, right? So the showcases include poetry reads and other stories and memories, some children book reads, lots of wonderful holiday excerpts that our contributors have uh, brought to you. And then we have one segment, just one, dedicated all to food. So that includes um a, a cook-along, a little bit of a recipe sharing. Uh, we have tons of food memories and traditions. There's a really good story coming up about a deep-fried turkey that one of our contributors did. I'm not going to tell you who. you got to tune in, though, because it's a pretty fun story uh, and an ex- experiment. And then we have some quizzes. Our quiz master this year, Grant Hardy, is going to be running a holiday quiz. We have our always traditional skit by Fern Lullum and her bestie Jasmine. Uh, This one's a really, really funny one. Every year I say that, but it's a really funny one. Lots of laugh out loud moments. So tune in for that. And then our music showcase, we call this artist corner. Our holiday artist corner um, is packed with some beautiful, very new, some very original, even parodies from our contributors. So I'm very excited that uh, it's, it's filling up Kel's. That's really good. That's really great. We love doing it, folks, and giving you that present. There's a little of something in there for everybody. So, again, that will be on December 23rd, re-aired on the 24th and 25th, right here on AMI-audio. Let's take a look at what we've got ahead today on Kelly & Company. On our wellness chat, as we get into the program today, Francis Wong will be sharing how you can use mindful eating to help manage your eating habits. Love it. Connect for Life founder Melanie Taddeo is joining us with news and updates about the organization because there's a lot going on there. She's going to keep us posted. And on the program later on, we'll get into our book club and we're going to review The Diamond Eye by Kate Quinn with the recommender of the novel, Julie Martin, when she joins us. Julie will actually join us twice on the program, both in hour two here on Kelly and Company. So Canada's busiest airport is adopting new landing procedures in an effort to cut down on noise and greenhouse gas emissions. 
Airplanes approaching the airport from the south are now able to fly 1,000 feet higher than before. The corporation that runs the country's civil air navigation system says that will reduce noise over some nearby communities. Nav Canada says Pearson is now using satellite-based data and modern flight management systems to help planes arrive at the same time on parallel runways. Pearson Airport is the second in Canada to roll out the procedures after Calgary International did so in 2018. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press, Toronto. I know some people think that making such adjustments, flying higher or whatever it might be, Ramya, is an easy thing to do. Just oh, just make the decision. But when we talk about needing the state-of-the-art equipment, the advanced stuff that's out there, and keeping ahead of of the game, that's what allows you really to do stuff like this. When you're talking busy airports of any kind, any kind where you have planes moving at the paces they do and doing what they do next to metropolitan areas. Yeah, of course. I mean, we want there to be some more efficiency. We've seen in the last two years or so that、um, travel is struggling, right? And it's not necessarily the te- technical technological aspect, but there are all these other reasons why travel is struggling, time consuming. It's feeling like you can't、uh, go in or come in, go out, whatever. And so all these little things make a Big, big, big difference, and we don't always keep posted on the front front end or whatever here、um, in the public eye. But when we hear about it, and then when we start to notice just even the little changes, the numbers,、um, the increases, the decreases, whatever it may be, it makes obviously a huge difference overall. Oh yeah, that behind the scenes. Uh, that behind-the-scenes progress. I think we're gonna、uh, try to see if we can get Kelly back. But that pr- behind-the-scenes progress makes、uh, such value for the kinds of things that we're seeing. So, I mean, this is just one、yeah. way, pretty close to home too, Kels. It's not even we're talking space and shuttles. Yeah, well, when we have that behind the scenes, as we mentioned, it is really coming out of the pandemic. The things that they have to do to try to make things faster, and anyway, even if it's that illusion to us that it's going to be faster traveling,、uh, Ramya, we were talking about our present to people, but there's、uh, another little handout for free that our friend Michael Arnowitz is doing. Yeah, this is really fun. So, if you're in the Toronto area and you want to come check out some live music, Michael Arnowitz putting on a concert. It's a piano concert. It's happening at the Four Seasons、uh, Center for the Performing Arts. It's happening on Tuesday, December sixth. It is in the middle of the day, so keep that in mind. At noon,、uh, it's from noon to one p.m. and it's part of the COC's City Sessions concerts. This is in the Richard Branshaw Amphitheater. So. These are just to give you some background. Some free concerts that run from noon to one p.m. and he'll be performing a varied program. He says of colorful music and past and present. Two recent pieces, just to go down the list of some of the things he mentioned as highlights. Two recent pieces by the Ukrainian composer Victoria Polova, who's absorbing. Expressive and deeply spiritual music. He's been trying to raise awareness of in North America. One he says it's an epic dramatic piece. And、um, what else he has? He's got two beautiful etudes by Claude Debussy, and this is amazing music. He says that he's written near the end of his life that Claude wrote、uh, that take us on interesting adventures into this unique world of spacious seniorities. Bells and water imagery that go beyond sound to evoke touch and other senses. 
Also on the program are two pieces by the fascinating early 20th century composer Arthur Lowry. This sounds really cool and such a variety. Whose music, whose, uh, he says, is being rediscovered and performed more widely in the last 10 years. So... The Four Seasons Center uh, Amphitheater is a pleasant and giant space, he says. He says you can check it out. It's pretty accessible as well. And the address for the Four Seasons Center for the Performing Arts is 145 Queen Street West. And if you can't remember that, it is near the Osgood subway station for some quick landmarks. Tuesday, December 6th at noon Eastern time. Check it out if you're in Toronto. Yeah, awesome. Really nice, Michael. I love the descriptions uh, that really play in for some of that music. It's just beautiful. In a moment, as we step aside for a second here on Kelly and Company, skipping a meal is a problem. Well, Dr. Danielle Johnkine is going to be talking to us next about the ins and outs of our pets' appetites. Please stick around. This is Kelly and Company on a Tuesday afternoon. We're just fixing and going through some things that uh, Kelly's board might be doing. But in the meantime, the show must go on. You can call us to give us your feedback on the show or some commentary on our conversations. 1-866-509-4545. You can also email us. That's nice. It can be short. Feedback at AMI.ca and even shorter on Twitter because there's word counts, I think, still. And the handle is at AMI-audio. Now, let's go to our Tuesday conversations with Dr. Danielle Jeankind. She joins us for Ask a Veterinarian, where we talk all about our animal friends. And one thing about our animal friends, our pets, that we know is that they love food. And not just their own, sometimes other people's food is even better. <laughs> and sometimes we think, okay, well, do all pets love food? There might be some pets who aren't particularly motivated by food, and that's just their way of being in the world. But not eating, sometimes we uh, link this to a sign of illness. But how do we know exactly when our pets skipping a meal is a problem or maybe not a problem? What else causes pets to stop eating or reduce their appetite altogether? When should and shouldn't we be concerned about this? And that's what we're talking about with Danielle today, the ins and outs of our pet's appetite. So, Danielle, to get started, maybe we can talk about um, this food motivation bit. Would you say that most pets are motivated by food? Well, that's that's actually a hard question to answer. You know, an intense drive to eat seems to be very much an individual thing among pets, in my experience. Um, it's also kind of hard to assess in a vet clinic environment. You know, animals under stress will often refuse treats, even if they would normally gobble them down under other circumstances, like if they're mm-hmm. at home or outside. And so I can also say, though, that, you know, I have run into some pets, particularly dogs, with a ridiculous food obsession. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about dogs that are counter surfers, you know, doing their best to climb up on countertops to get at anything within reach. Yep. I actually know of um, 
one dog who made it necessary for the people in the house to lock the refrigerator. Oh, my. <laughs> because he figured out how to open the fridge. And the same dog also actually almost managed to blow their house up because they were scrambling with their feet against the controls for the gas range, um, trying to get at something on the stove and turned the gas on by accident. And thank goodness the people returned in time to shut it off before a spark ignited it. <laughs> so you can see that some, some dogs are just like crazy this way. Um, cats are not immune to this either, though truly food-obsessed cats are much more rare in my experience anyway. Um, I myself have now lived with two food-obsessed cats. <laughs> in my house, the cat food bag must be locked in the closet. And, you know, when my last cat, Simon, was around, I couldn't leave anything out anywhere in the house. Um, when Simon was a kitten, my husband and I lived in a small one-bedroom apartment, and our dining table was the coffee table in front of the couch. That's where we ate dinner. And mm-hmm. Simon actually used to sit below my husband's plate, and you know, when he was distracted by the TV, the cat would swipe a paw up and knock <laughs> food off the plate and onto the floor where he could snatch it up and run away and eat it. <laughs> so Fair bad. game, though. Coffee table is their level. <laughs> it was. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, but... Having said all that, it's important to know that just as many pets are picky about their food, you know, too. So some, you know, refuse to eat anything but their preferred brand or will skip meals now and then. And, you know, these pets seem to eat when they're hungry and they don't really seem to care much about food at all. Um, I've noticed that cats and small breed dogs seem to be more likely to be included in this group. But, yeah, that's kind of some generalities. My friend's cats, Michael and Jackson, are one of each. One of them is absolutely food-obsessed. If you're snacking while you have a whole board game going on, forget the board game because he will come for the snack and swipe everything off the table. (laughs) And then the other one is very particular, absolutely no for any kind of changes with food. So do clients bring symptoms of their pets not eating a lot to you, Danielle? Oh, absolutely. Um, It's one of the most common reasons for someone to be bringing their pet in. Um, Sometimes it's obvious that a pet isn't eating because it is sick, you know, but you'd be surprised by how often people bring their pet in for not eating and the pet isn't actually ill. Um, What might be happening in some cases is that the pet isn't living up to the client's expectations of how much or when it should be eating, which is not really the same thing as an illness, you know. So a lot of people, I think, they they get worried or upset if their pet's pattern of eating changes. Um, Mm -hmm. They also can, you know, get worried if their pet isn't eating as much as they think it should be eating or if it isn't diving into the food and scarfing it all down at once before looking for more. And I actually see this situation a lot when a pet reaches adulthood, you know, because they're not growing anymore. So their calorie requirements aren't quite as much and their appetite tends to change in a lot of cases. Um, I also see it in some very overweight adult pets who start refusing pet food in favor of table scraps. He won't eat unless I mix chicken in it, you know, is a common explanation right. I'll get for that type of situation. <laughs> and, you know, we we do have to be careful not to let our own fears and expectations get in the way of a pet's natural urge to regulate its food intake and its weight. So, I mean, definitely it is not a good idea to ignore changes in appetite, but it's important to kind of distinguish, you know, when a pet is simply naturally self-regulating their food intake from when that symptom of not eating is a symptom of an actual illness. Yeah, but it is kind of true. Like when you talk about uh, patterns changing, when Glizzy goes to grandma's house and he gets spoiled, his his 
butt spoiled off, then he comes back home and won't eat kibble for like a week. So <laughs> just saying. It's a thing. Um, but let's keep going. So what should we look out for to distinguish between a pet who isn't eating because of illness and one who's fine but maybe not feeling like it? We know everybody should kind of pay attention to and be familiar with their pet's normal pattern of eating. And, right. you know, as I mentioned before, you know, some pets are known counter surfers and others are known picky eaters. Um, there's an important clue in that they've always been that way, you know. So unexplained changes from the usual eating pattern could indicate an illness. So, you know, changes that happen over weeks or months are less concerning to me than changes that happen abruptly. You know, for example, if your known counter surfer ate yesterday but refuses to eat today, I'd be really <laughs> concerned about an illness being the cause of not eating. Um, but if it's not unusual for your picky dog to skip a meal and they didn't eat their breakfast, I wouldn't be nearly as worried, you know. Um, another thing to watch for, of course, is other signs of disease. You know, a, a sick pet might have vomiting or diarrhea. They might be coughing, sneezing, or having a running nose. Um, they might be profoundly lethargic and might not want to do their usual routine. So by that, I mean like a dog might stop running to the door when the doorbell rings or might refuse to go for a walk. You know, well, the cat who prowls the windowsills watching the birds outside is hiding in the closet or under the bed, and that would be unusual for them. You know, these are all good indicators that the pet maybe isn't eating because they're sick. And the third thing I would watch for is weight loss. Um, some of those insidious, slowly progressive illnesses like chronic kidney failure, you know, tumors, um, brain diseases, some of those can have clinical signs that are initially so mild that they're really easy to miss. Sometimes a slowly progressive loss of appetite and a slow weight loss is the only sign that something is wrong. So a healthy pet, of course, will eat enough to maintain their weight or they might be gaining it. But if your pet is slowly losing weight over time and you don't have them on a diet, that's another indicator that something might be wrong. Now, there is, of course, one caveat to this discussion, and, and that is that we have to treat cats a little differently than dogs with respect to not eating. Cats have a nasty habit of getting liver disease as a consequence of not eating, regardless of what started the not eating in the first place. Oh, wow. And that makes it, yeah, so, you know, it kind of makes it important to notice if your cat suddenly stops eating and gets them to the vet if that happens. And, yeah. of course, Noticing that can be easier said than done. You know, a lot of cats live with other cats, and of course, they all eat out of the same bowl, or they have one of those silo feeders, which is kept constantly filled. And sometimes that can make it really hard to tell if one of the cats stops eating. So, you know, if you do have multiple cats and you aren't sure if one of them might be ill, you might temporarily put one of the ones that you think might be alone in a bedroom or a bathroom with their own food, water, and litter. And then you'll be able to monitor what's going on a whole lot easier. And, you know, it, there's a bonus to that too. And it makes it easier to catch them if you have to medicate them um, or if you have to take them to the vet. And, of course, once they're normal, you know, you can kind of let them back out again and leave them to their own devices. Wow, a big time reason to make sure that you're observing or have that reason to uh, go right away and get checked if that if you if you do discover so what kind of illnesses show not eating as a symptom well you know not eating is one of those non-specific symptoms you know meaning that a lot of illnesses can cause it so you know anything from dental problems like a, an abscessed tooth or something for example to gastrointestinal disease like pancreatitis um, or brain tumors, you know, can even cause a pet to lose their appetite. So, 
that symptom doesn't always help us to narrow down what's going on, but, you know, it's a really good one for people um, to have a way of noticing that there's a problem, you know, and sometimes appetite can act as a bit of a barometer to assess improvement as well. So, you know, your animal has a problem, it's being treated, and it's feeling better, and the appetite improves, you know, that'll tell you, oh, yeah, things are getting better. So it's, you know, something that's really worth noticing and paying attention to. Yeah, it sounds like it. And how do vets treat an appetite in pets or lack of appetite? You know, I get this question from clients a lot, you know, because I hear I hear the phrase, all I need is to get a meeting again. If we could do that, he'd be fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and and the problem with that statement is that a lack of appetite isn't a disease in and of itself. It's a symptom of symptom. some other problem. Yeah, so, you know, the best way of fixing it, of course, is to diagnose what's causing it and then to treat the underlying disease. So, you know, when the underlying disease is managed or if if we can cure it and it's cured, the appetite usually returns to normal. And, you know, sometimes we can determine the problem through the history and a physical exam. And other times you might need to do some testing like blood or urine tests. Um, with some conditions, x-rays, ultrasounds, or even advanced diagnostics, things like endoscopy or MRI might be needed. But, you know, until we know what's going on, we can kind of institute some symptomatic treatment to help stabilize a pet and help to help your pet to feel better. So that might include fluid therapy, for example, if a pet is dehydrated, um, or pain medication if it's painful. Um, in the case of poor appetite, we have a range of symptomatic treatments that we can try. So sometimes a pet will respond to a diet change. Um, there are a number of what we call recovery-type diets out there, which are, you know, yummy, high-calorie canned diets that a pet doesn't really have to eat that much of in order to get um, a lot of nutritional support. Um, Force feeding with a syringe is something a pet owner can do at home, but it can be difficult to do and it comes with um, some risk. You know, sometimes if you don't want to shoot that food right down the back of the throat and have the animal inhale it, that can be dangerous. So you have to be careful. Um, Another option is to try an appetite stimulant, you know, which is medication that your vet can prescribe, which, you know, can help encourage your pet to eat. Um, Appetite stimulants don't always work, but they do help in a lot of cases. So it's worth talking to your vet about whether they think one is appropriate for your pet's case. Um, And, you know, there are also some medical interventions. So things like feeding tubes, you know, that can be placed to support a pet in cases where, you know, we're thinking that, you know, that longer term support is needed. Um, in, in extreme cases, pets can also be fed intravenously, but generally that is only done in rare instances where, you know, a pet is in an ICU and either, you know, the gastrointestinal tract doesn't work for some reason or for whatever reason it's not possible to get the pet the nutrition it needs in any other way. But again, all of this is really just kind of managing the symptom while we're working mm-hmm. on getting rid of the problem. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely fantastic, Danielle. And I mean, I know a lot of time it's something a pet picks up, makes it not feel good, and unfortunately sometimes a blockage. But these are so many things, like you said, over time. Watch, observe, and do something about. Uh, Next week we're going to be talking to you about gift ideas for pets and animal lovers, and you'll spill the beans on some of the funniest and most memorable gifts you've received in that same theme. We'll talk to you then. Okay, then. Danielle Johnkind joins us at this time every week for Ask a Veterinarian. Up next, our wellness chat. Francis Wong is going to be sharing with us how you can use mindful eating to help manage 
your eating habits next. AEBC and Partners present the 6th Annual International Day of Persons with Disabilities Conference. It's called Empowering Ourselves, Thriving in This New Reality. This is on December 3rd, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern, and this virtual conference will be accessible to all and will feature ASL interpreters and real-time live captioning, featuring uh, Michael Gothill as the uh, featured uh, speaker. He is the Accessibility Commissioner, among others that will be on the docket. AMI will be broadcasting here on AMI-audio with Joey DeGuca. The whole event registration is free and online at Eventbrite. Register via email or request any accommodations at aebctoronto at gmail.com. Ramya Muthan, Kelly McDonald, host of the show. Every other Tuesday, we chat about the world of health and wellness with Francis Wong, and this is opposite nutrition with Julia Caranches. But once in a while... We collide some of these conversations and find some links. So today that link is food. Sometimes we get overwhelmed with the choices of food that we can choose to eat, which is a pretty good problem to ask if you're a foodie. But the time of year where there tends to be an overabundance of food and eating is around the winter holidays. So today, Francis, we're going to talk about the tendencies to overeat and what we can do to combat that. Yeah, that's great, Ramya. And it's totally opposite to what Danielle was talking about not eating. So we're going Mm -hmm. to the other direction now. Um, So from now until the New Year's, we're going to be presented with a lot of food almost everywhere we turn. If you're at the office, people may be bringing in baked goods or there may be a bake sale. And then don't forget about the team or floor lunches and the company dinners. And then in your own circles, there may be many opportunities for family and friends to gather and celebrate the holidays. And most of that will also be surrounded by food. And so it's easy to overeat when we're out celebrating with others, but we can actually turn that around and use it to our advantage. With food available to us at home, maybe you've got snacks in the cupboards or fridge since our last chat on preparedness or food delivery um, apps delivering food to you. It's easy to fall into mindless eating patterns. Okay. Mm. So if we say that, with that said, what would the opposite of that, what would it be? I mean, what is mindful eating then? Uh, yeah, Kelly, eating slowly is definitely one of the criteria and really paying attention to how you're feeling. If your stomach is becoming fuller and you're eating to the point of satisfaction and fullness without overindulging, you're looking at using all your senses to eat to help determine if you're eating out of true hunger or whether it's something that's triggering you to eat. It's having a healthy relationship and appreciation for food without judgment. Do you guys know how long it takes for your brain to register that you ate food? 20 minutes. Isn't it like 20 minutes? Yeah, yeah, right. So yeah, anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. So in October, we talked about oral care and how taking care of our mouth and teeth allows us to really taste our food. And so if we take the time to slowly chew our food, it buys us time for our brain to acknowledge that we are on our way to eat getting full. If we eat too quickly, it's super easy to overeat without even realizing it until it's too late. Yeah. I mean, I did a, 
It's funny because our society is all about that, eating fast or or doing everything well, fast. Well, that's our lifestyles, right? Like you eat on the go. You don't really take a lunch or actual dinner breaks. Um, aside from, I guess, when you're social eating, which you're probably going to get to, Francis. But I took a workshop. It wasn't really a workshop. It was like a time where we're supposed to all eat, mindful eat together. And it was some one of the most uncomfortable things I'd done. Slow down my eating, put my utensils down between bites like it was really interesting Mm -hmm. so you maybe you can give us some tips like that to uh stop with the emotional eating yeah i guess you can equate emotional eating to mindless eating i mentioned earlier that we can use upcoming meals with friends as a way to structure our eating so when we're alone it's easy just to grab food at random times and places but when we're getting together with friends we have a set place and time to eat when we're alone, not only do we tend to eat more, but we're doing other things at the same time. Just like you said, watching TV or scrolling through our phone or worse, walking while eating or mm-hmm. if you drive, driving while stuffing your face on your way to something else. The whole eating on the run comes to mind. So does that sound familiar? <laughs> yep. Yep. And hurrying to do so, it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another way that um, we can counteract emotional eating is to really become aware of our emotions. What um, we want to do is check in with ourselves. Are we really hungry or is it an emotion that is driving us to eat? Are we bored or sad or lonely? And once you assess that, you're bringing a mindfulness aspect to your eating habits. And when you're eating just eat. Don't do anything else. Like you, you said, Ramya, you know, bite your food, like put your fork down. This really allows us to be connected to what our body is taking in and connect better the feedback that our body is giving us. Whenever I go to the States for my yoga training, breakfast in the dining hall is silent. No electronics are allowed. Mm. And so, you know, you're sitting there with no distractions around I'm thinking about how the food is nourishing me and where it comes from, rather than just looking at the food as an end product. One of the benefits of mindful eating can also be weight loss just from not mindlessly eating. I can imagine. I mean, even what you said about just the way we handle it. One of my friends always used to say, oh, I have a taste for that that was his way of as, as opposed yep. to do I need the food? Do I want? Oh, you I'm know, craving. Oh, I yeah. crave. I have a taste for. I think I'll go out and get. Oh, and and again, it's that. Then you couple that with the fast eating, where your brain doesn't have time to say, "Okay, you're full now," or like you say, the the quiet to say, "Ah, this is good. This is I'm enjoying this," and not just being. I got to hurry up and eat because then the next thing I have to do. So speaking of the mindless, uh, mindful, mindful eating or mindless eating, excuse me, how does (laughs) snacking fit into the picture of, of mindful eating? Uh, uh, Yeah. Let me just say that the struggle is real. Um, However, you can still apply the same tips that we just talked about. And I want to clarify that mindful eating does not mean cutting yourself off from guilty pleasures. So Kelly, you said your friend has a taste for it. That's exactly right. I mean, it's not about saying no, no, you can't have a cookie or you can't eat chips. It's about making conscious choices in what we consume and why we are making those choices. So again, I would say to ask yourself, did you just destroy this bag of chips because you were stressed or did you have that cookie as a reward for something you accomplished? And there's no right or wrong, but it's focusing the lens on the why so that you can make better choices. 
On the other hand, if you find yourself constantly snacking because you're truly hungry, and Remy, I mentioned like the cravings, then maybe you might want to take a second look at your diet to make sure you're getting balanced meals. If your body has everything it needs, then there shouldn't be as many cravings. It's interesting you mentioned stress too, Francis, because I think that that's an emotion we're not always uh, attuned to. Like if I had a really, really long day, if I'm kind of uh, picking apart my week and reflecting on the past week or something, if I had a really long day, I can tell that I've eaten much more throughout the day, by the end of the day, whatever it is. So you might think like, I'm not sad, I'm not lonely, but just that stress or, or, you know, how long you've worked or how long you've gone had to be on uh, makes a big difference in your eating habits if you're not mm. always paying attention to eat that. Eat faster, right? You, like, like if you're stressed, your eat mind's faster, elsewhere. You feel like you just have to be eating. Yeah. You're tired, so you're hungry, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, are there other tools we can use to help us with mindful eating? Yeah, and I just want to go back to that about the stress. I think that we are almost in a constant state of stress that we're not even really necessarily aware of that. So that's also that awareness where, you know, we're stressed out. So we just go back into our habits of, you know, eating whatever's around or available. That's just kind of our way of coping. So um, I'm glad you asked um, about tools that we can use because in today's world, of course, there's an app for that. Um, One of the ones that I came across that I found interesting is called Shutterbite Mindful Eating. So based on the name of the app, you can sort of guess that it has to do with taking pictures of your food. But this isn't so that you can post pictures of your meals to Instagram or Facebook. Um, It first asks you what your goal is um, so that they can help you hopefully achieve with this app. And it gives you a few options like you want to improve or repair a relationship with food, develop better eating habits, lose weight or other. And what I like about this app is that for every meal that you log, it will ask you to input what you ate. And you can be as detailed or as short as you like and upload a photo of your meal from your camera if you're too lazy to type it out. This app has good intentions in that it doesn't focus on calorie counting or weight watching. Mind you, I didn't choose the lose weight option as my goal of using Shutterbite when I was testing this out. I selected improving or repairing a relationship with food. Ah, so the app does this by asking Yeah, so the app does this by asking you before every meal, why are you eating and what your hunger level is? So you can select from the tiles one or more of the options like it's I'm hungry or it's time, stress, tired, boredom, reward, or, and I think some of us can relate, especially if it's a snack and not a meal to the, it was there option. (laughs) And I say it applies to snacks because that's more likely just to be there rather than a meal magically appearing. I mean, I'd love to have my meals just magically appear and be there, but unfortunately it doesn't happen in my life unless I just ordered it from Uber Eats. So, um, Before you eat, you say why, and then you rate your hunger level and your craving level on a sliding scale. And lastly, you can select the mood that matches you from a sad emoji to a happy one. And it might sound like a lot, but it's pretty quick to move through. And then when you actually start to eat, you can press the button on the meal timer so that you can time and see how quickly or slowly you are actually eating. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And then after you eat, you track how full you are and reflect on how the food made you feel. Again, the answers are quick. Um, You just press a button, one or more of the tiles with answers like satisfied, unsatisfied, energetic, happy, angry, sad, anxious, tired, stressed, calm, I don't know, or other. And then the next question is, how full are you? And the answers are on a sliding scale of starving to neutral, 
which is a five out of 10, to full, which is a seven, to an eight of stuffed, or a nine of bloated. And hopefully you'll never put down a 10 out of 10, since then you'd be feeling nauseous. Mm, And then (laughs) (laughs) you're asking the same questions as before the meal, how your cravings um, and mood are after you eat. You can save your meal and then you can look at the stats over a day, week or month. I mean, if you stop and think about it, when was the last time you ate a meal and paused at the end to really notice how your body feels after eating what you did? For real. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and a lot of time we associate that with the big meal or the family meal, the 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 special meal that uh, mom or or your partner has made for you, or something like that. There's or, or an occasion you know, where where somebody's birthday or whatever, or or yours, I guess, would you know, be a better example. Where you sit back and oh, that was so wonderful. Something special that was made for for you, you know, and and you sit back on that that meal, and that's when you do it. A lot of other time, we just eat to to manage, to, to get by. So with there being so many apps out there, Francis, are there any specific things that people should look for when selecting one for mindful eating? Yeah, when I was checking out what mindful eating apps were available, it seemed like there were a lot that had come and gone in the last few years. I thought that was pretty good because among some of the things that we've already covered, the basic app is free. If you want to track unlimited amount of meals, then you can subscribe on a monthly basis. But some of the other apps I saw seem to require a subscription after a free trial period. What I think you want to look for is an app that focuses more on the experience of eating rather than that calorie counting um, that I talked about earlier so that it's eating with intention. And I think that if you want to make this even more mindful, consider ditching the app completely and going old school and writing it in a journal. You're thinking about what you ate or your mood, and then you're writing it out on paper and reinforcing a mind and body connection. I like it. I think that this is great and uh, a whole different perspective on posting your food, right? Like if you're taking pictures of food, putting it on Instagram, Facebook, like as you said, we do with other apps, uh, a totally different scenario. This is consciousness. Um, I loved it. Thank you so much for all the tips, Francis. Thanks, guys. Francis Wong joining us on our wellness segment. That's every other week. Okay, folks, it's time to uh, do a little catching up. We're going to check a chat with Connect for Life uh, founder Melanie Tadio when she joins us about what's new with her. Boy, a lot ahead, folks. Stick around. Wherever you're listening in around the world, appreciate you hanging out with us. Stick around. So much content still ahead on the program. If you're maybe listening, working, sitting at AMI.ca where you can stream the program. Good thing. That's excellent. You also might have TuneIn Radio or the Radio Player Canada app available to you. Awesome. If you don't have them, you got to get them because if you have to run out during the show, great way to take us with you. That's the Radio Player Canada app and TuneIn Radio. Just download them to your smart device, do a search for AMI-audio, and then you can take Kelly and company with you, whether it's the live show at 2 p.m. Eastern or the first repeat at 10 p.m. Eastern time. 
Ramia Muthan, Kelly McDonald, we are the hosts. She's at the home studio in Toronto. Kelly McDonald at the home studio in London, Ontario. Melanie Taddeo is the founder of Connect for Life, whose vision is to enhance the potential of individuals with disabilities by strengthening their independence and contributions to society and to promote positive social change by transforming public perception. Melanie has a lot of exciting advocacy updates to share with us. So we thought we'd bring her back on the show, of course, former contributor to Kelly and Company. And Melanie, we taught you often when you're about to do an intake of students to refresh people's memories of, of the courses. But there's so much going on. I'm going to let you tell everybody out there a little bit about yourself and Connect for Life, please, to start. Great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Great to connect again. So, yes, I'm the founder of Connect for Life. We've been doing that since 2014, and we have many programs, including our broadcast training program that is on a bit of a hiatus right now, but we are still running programs are into the public speaking or connect for wellness as well as getting geared up for the spring for all of our new programs starting up but we have an exciting fundraiser happening for our radio station voices for ability radio starting this week coming um, in the spirit of the giving season as it is giving tuesday today so that's coming up and that's what's going on at connect for life there's so much more going on though kelly yeah you've got quite a bit go ahead i'm sorry I was going to say, there's tons happening with you. So let's talk about, um, do you want to start with the Voices for Ability and get a program and give us a bit of an update on that first? Absolutely. So again, our broadcast training program in Accessible Voice and Broadcasting, we finished up in the summer, believe it or not, I can't believe how it flew by. And we were going to start one up in the fall. However, you know, funding, the gaps, that sort of thing didn't come through as we had hoped. And we want to make sure we're able to offer this program at no cost to our clients. So we put it on pause to the new year in hopes that we can work all that out. And so that will be coming an update uh, for intake starting again in the new year. So that's exciting. But we also have hopefully added an element for an internship piece to it. So that's to come, but more details for that. So that's just going on for that one. But again, wow. as we're doing the fundraiser for Voices for Ability, we are continuing to have people come on board if they have a show idea, things like that, looking for interviews. All of that stuff is still happening. Yeah, it's a it's a lot about people being able to live out, you know, different angles of their dreams. We all have them. We, we, you know, you hope you're lucky to have your dreams and you're even luckier when whatever component or part of it you're able to do something with, Melanie. So really wonderful at helping people get in that direction or uh, fulfill that. I would like you also, since people are probably saying, what's this woman kind of about? How could I learn a little more about her? Tell us a little bit about your new book, My Unforeseen Journey, Losing Sight, Gaining Vision. Okay, yes, absolutely. So before the pandemic, I had crafted my story. Everybody had told me I should write my book and tell my story. And I thought, but I don't want it to just be about me. So I was able to work with a publisher to share my story, but also to give tangible takeaways for the reader to apply to their own unforeseen change, a death in the family, a loss of a job, a breakup of a relationship, or hmm, a pandemic. <laughs> so it's great in the sense that a lot of people have utilized it during the pandemic of going through coping and grieving, going through what we had and where we are today. And it's available in printed version, ebook, as well as audiobook version. Wow. Wow. How do you, when you sat down to kind of figure out how to write this and how to be inclusive in the way that 
you wanted to, not really knowing and, and being a first endeavor, writing the, the, the book and getting it out there. What was one or two pieces of advice and how, as you thought about the course of the book and what would be coming down that you were going to be sharing to make sure that you had it the way you wanted, that it wasn't just your story, that you were inclusive in the way that was advised to you? Well, again, having a, a solid outline, we all have a story to share, everybody. And whether we do it through journaling, you know, jotting things down, short stories, whatever it might be, even on a podcast, finding out what is it the audience needs to hear. You know, yes, we, all of our messages are universal, but our stories could be personal. So find that universal message that translates to your audience and knowing who that audience is the first step. Melanie, I wonder if you can tell us about your Gaining Vision enterprise. Ah, thanks, Ramya. It's so good. Um, so Gaining Vision, okay, during the pandemic, I know everybody was stuck at home. I was, you know, working on Connect for Life, and I was doing a lot of great stuff. But I also noticed there was a lot of gaps. A lot of people were feeling isolated and lonely, but also a lot of people were not being able to find jobs. And I work with individuals with disabilities for years now, and I see that there's a gap for employers to truly understand the benefits and values of hiring individuals with disabilities. Right. And I noticed the gap was they weren't sure how to implement a program to embrace inclusion. And it's from a disability perspective and accessibility lens. And so I decided that I was going to create a consulting business to help employers through education, training, and expertise, whether that's from crafting an accessibility plan or an equity, diversity, and inclusion plan, or even workshops and training for management and other staff to help them make the process of hiring and implementing accommodations for individuals with disabilities to help fill that gap for individuals with disabilities of accessing employment that makes them feel included, as well as sharing with these employers the business case. It makes good business sense to hire individuals with disabilities. Okay. Absolutely fantastic, Melanie. That's really, really incredible. But I know people listening are stopping and saying, well, hold on, hold on. How can I learn a little bit more? So where should they go to learn about the enterprises that you've got going on I'm so on glad. So I'm glad you asked because I'm not just doing it for Canada because, yes, we know in Canada we have a lot of great people working towards this common goal of inclusion. I have spread it to a global platform, including the United States and South Africa, Kelly. So I am... I've been really getting a great reception from South Africa, and I've been able to connect with people across the globe via Zoom. With the pandemic, we also learned all about that. And I've been holding focus groups for people here in Canada and um, in South Africa for people to connect and share their experiences because the barriers that all of us with disabilities are facing are the same straight across the board. So we're kicking off our launch on December 8th, and I'd love people to join us. It is a bright and early time zone because of opening it up globally, 8 a.m., and it'll be via Zoom, and you just have to register. And then I'm headed to South Africa in January for three weeks to connect with the people I've been connecting with, the government, the schools, the departments of education, and the people and organizations there with disabilities to learn from them. And I'll be documenting everything on my YouTube channel. So I'm hoping everybody can join me on this adventure by following and subscribing to my YouTube channel so they can be part of the adventure as well. 
Nice. And we want to talk more about that because that sounds really incredible. And I'm, I'm, my first question is why now? Like to your trip to South Africa, um, why in this circumstance and um, what specifically do you want to learn from people with disabilities over there? So for me, I've been reaching out with them since August, and I wanted to understand the lived experience in South Africa because I can share my experience from here, but it may not be relevant. So I've heard a lot of there is a need currently for individuals with disabilities of they're, they're desperate to find work after they graduate from high school, and there just seems a disconnect. So speaking with the boards of education, employers, and the government. They, they have the desire to do it, but they they don't have the people to do the work. So I thought this is a great gap I can fill and come and share what has worked here and what I've learned. And they're open to it. They want to make their workplaces more inclusive. And helping people embrace inclusion is a good thing for across the globe. And then, of course, businesses like to hear that it makes good business sense as well. So why am I going in January? Well, Rami, of course, it's summer there. <laughs> but, <laughs> of no, course. It's timing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and you'll be going all over the place and not just with business. Uh, I don't know how much you can say, want to say at, at this point uh, to share with us, but are, are you going to be speaking government people, schools? Yes. Yes, I have. I, I've got, it's funny. I said I was going for vacation. It's a working vacation. We're there for three weeks, going to three different provinces. I have meetings with departments of education, schools, individuals and organizations working with people with disabilities and the government. So very exciting times. Okay. People want to follow you. How how can they do that? Uh, I mean, we talked about YouTube and that, but you also have a podcast. I do. Oh, take another look. Yes. Another great thing. I'm always trying to have uncomfortable conversations about topics people like to shy away with. My co-host, Gerda Felix, and I have weekly conversations. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. And of course, you can follow me on all my social media handles, and I think you'll share that in the blog. Uh, but please come out to the launch, learn, connect with people across the globe. We all want to know how our life and the possibilities available with inclusion. 8 a.m. on December 8th. And also, Melanie, hoping as you document through uh, Africa, South Africa when you're out there, uh, can we talk about the fact that people got to go do the sign up uh, for YouTube quickly because. The more you get on there, the more live live events yes, you can have. Yes, please. Yes. Gaining vision with Melanie Tedos Malo. And again, it will be in the blog. Please help me out. I'm trying to hit 100 followers. I know it doesn't sound like a lot. I'm, I'm only at 47, guys. I need the help. And I just thought, way well, you guys can help and be part of the journey with me. Because I think it's important for us to connect with people across the globe sharing our lived experiences. AMI.ca slash Kelly Cole. That's our blog, ladies and gentlemen. And that was Connect for Life founder, Melanie Taddeo, joining us. Appreciate it, Melanie. Good luck. Thanks, guys, so much. Have a great time. All right. The best to you, and thanks for coming on the program. Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time again. We've reached the bottom of our first hour here on Kelly and Company. And and ahead, we'll chat with Rhonda Solomon. PhD student at the University of Toronto about her research on public uh, toilets provisions for people with disabilities. And on our book club, we review the diamond eye, uh, of course. And up next, folks, community reporter, Lee Martin. She's going to be joining us and she's going to highlight the International Flying Cafe Facebook group started recently by a fellow in Winnipeg. We'll talk to her in a moment.
While you're at it and you want to get tuned up, ladies and gentlemen, you know, again, January 9th is coming and you'll be able to find us on AMI customers. Guys, look for us on channel 889 locations in your area. Kelly McDonald with Rummy. Maybe we can all just ignore it and keep going. Uh, that's the uh, third co-host as we uh, have just decided that's the way it's going yeah. to be from now. Well, okay. He's decided that's the way it's going to be from now on. Yeah, it's all or nothing at this moment. So uh, we'll see. But anyways, no time like the present to check in with our community reporters. Monday and Tuesday, we get lots of great content, news, and updates and happenings from different communities around Canada. Julie Martin joins us from Pictou County, Nova Scotia. And Julie, we're uh, talking a lot of fun things today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Your first of two You're having fun, I hear. My first of two visits, yeah. Yeah. And you know what I realized? I just realized before I came on that this is my last community report for the year Mm -hmm. and the last one before I have to bear my ugly mug on TV. (laughs) I'm still not sure how I feel about that. So much to celebrate. (laughs) Exactly. So much. Oh, well. And you don't want to leave us with uh, nothing. So you got tons of stuff here, starting with a reminder about the CNIB virtual programs. Yes. Um, I just want to make sure that everybody that is listening to AMI right now, especially those of you in um, Nova Scotia, or any of the Maritimes for that matter, um, that You do not have to be connected to the internet. You do not need Wi-Fi. You don't need a smartphone or a computer or anything. If you have a telephone, the regular landline telephone, volunteers from CNIB Halifax will call you five to ten minutes before the program starts and just connect you to the call. Because there's nothing to see anyway. We're all listening to what's going on, whether we're playing, you know, Family Feud or Outburst or listening to the Member Two um, Nations um, or the Blue Nose, like whatever we're, they're all descriptive. So I just want to make sure that everybody is aware that these programs are not just for someone that is computer literate. And if you call Jeff DeViller at 902-456-5982, he will put you on the list and someone will call you every week and ask if you want to participate in the next week's events. And if you say yes, you'll get a call in, like I said, five, ten minutes before. And if you're not interested, well, then they'll call you the following week and let you know what's going on again. Very nice. Good, good. Um, Julie, one of the things during the pandemic we we definitely learned about was Zoom and other means in which to communicate, hop on and, and be part of a group. We made the world that much smaller because a lot of people who were used to hearing, well, it's in this and that community, you'll have to <laughs> get a ride or jump on transit to get there for this event. We, we learned a lot about virtual events and things like that going on. This is something interesting over with Facebook that, that you want to share with us. An international blind cafe Facebook group, once again, I'm feeling pressed because the world's getting smaller. Uh, you know, 
and and lady that I know through um, a couple of the CNIB groups um, kept suggesting that I should join this Facebook group, and I'm, it's just not me. Like it's not my kind of thing, you know. But then she told me there's a book club, so I joined, <laughs> of course. <laughs> And I'm telling you, this group is just, I am learning so much about so many different things. Um, it's 18 plus. It is called the International Blind Cafe. And it's a group for blind people to sit and chat um, just like in a cafe Um it's not a dating site. Um, it's a place where you can um, talk about whatever you want um, and meet people from all over the world. Um, and, and you don't have to talk about being blind because we're all so much more than our blindness. And what I like about this is the story of how it started. There's a fellow named Jason Reynolds who is lives in Manitoba. Of course, it's a Canadian that started this, right? And um, he lost his vision completely um, without any warning approximately two and a half, three years ago. And they just celebrated their six-month anniversary of this site. And when I spoke to him about you know, what was your goal when you started this? Every other word it was, well, I envisioned that and I envisioned that this. And you know how I'm very much, doesn't matter if you're losing your sight, you never have to lose your vision. And it just, the way this has evolved, um, it was himself and two other people, John and Tanya. Um, they were hoping for two or 300 members Wow. By the end of the year, and I think they surpassed that in the first month. Um, but this, it's more than just, you know, like there was one day I was putting laundry away and I thought, oh, maybe I'll just go in and see who's in the room and chat just to pass the time while I'm putting laundry away, you know. Um, but there's all these different um, groups. There's um, um, book club, like I said, there's open mic night, there's movie TV club, there is trivia, um, there's a young people's um, group, and there is cooking made simple. And that was amazing because all the little tips and tricks and not just because we have sight issues but you know a lot of us are living on on fixed incomes and especially now with everything that's going on so it's nice to get some ideas of you know budget friendly um things to make to take to parties over the holiday season and next week um ruth is doing uh breakfast so mm, we're all nice. going to take a breakfast uh, it's nice, recipe. like you said, even if it's not on your tongue all the time, the subject of uh, low vision, blindness, whatever, it's just people talking, meeting, and the unspoken relatability. Exactly. 
And that's what brings me back to Jason. It's that it's the power of one. You know, we all think we, we, mm-hmm. we're not going to make a difference. Um, and look at the difference. This just the thought that one person had is making in so many people's lives. And yeah. it's very refreshing not to have to always worry about being, not worry, that's the wrong word. But when we're on the CNIB calls, you know, we are politically correct. We do not swear. We're respectful of others. Um, you know, time and and everything, and it's just sometimes it's nice to have those open and honest conversations about life. Yeah, yeah, and and well, like you, don't you say, have to the, worry about you don't have to worry about the magic number of how many people. But if if you can help somebody out, one person, that's such a positive thing, and and I know that that is important um, because you never know the difference you make. That's really great. And he should be quite proud of himself, no. but it sounds like what a network of people being able to continually give back to each other. Julie, we'll put that of course oh, up yeah. on the blog, ami.ca slash Kelly co. Okay. Okay. Am I done? One, no. Have I got time for one more? Uh, yes, you do. One more real Ooh, quick. Okay. Uh, happy holidays. Adopt a library literacy program. And this is drop in holidays giveaway. What's going on here? Um, December 16th to 22nd, drop into any public library, pick up a children's book or two for free to wrap and put under the Christmas tree, and let's all read together this Christmas. That's it. Short and sweet. Amazing. Awesome. Well, we put that up on our blog as well, uh, Julie, because there's tons of stuff that people were wanting to check out in your area and other areas, it's the holidays, right? We're doing fun sure. things, good causes, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots going on. It's really nice, and it's nice to see more and more people actually going to groups again and and yeah. being positive about Christmas, the holidays. Yeah, it's really nice. It is, and it's great we ended up on a book thing because you're going to be back in the second hour for our book club. So we'll chat with you then. Yeah. All right. Talk to you then. Stay safe. Bye. Julie Martin is our community reporter in Pictou County, Nova Scotia. And I I really want to just go back to that first um, item she brought. Love the groups. Sorry, uh, not the groups. Love the uh, fact that volunteers will call you. There's a reminder that you don't need to be technologically savvy um, to participate in all of these incredible programs. Just have a phone and let people know that you want to participate and somebody will call you. Yeah. I mean, let's be fair. So many people have, have become more comfortable with technology and probably if the general course of the world had gone along without a pandemic getting in the way to do so, uh, maybe a lot of people now looking back say, well, that's that's one good thing that happened to me through the pandemic um, and, and something I've been able to pick up. But uh, still keeping people in mind, not kind of forgetting, hey, not everybody is ready for that or or is good about it. So a wonderful way to be more inclusive as well. Uh, coming up next, we're going to chat with Rhonda Solomon, a student at the University of Toronto, about her research on public toilet provisions for people with disabilities. Hope you'll stick around for that conversation. It's up next in two minutes on Kelly and Company.
Welcome back to the program. Ramya Muthan, Kelly McDonald. We are the hosts of the program. Thank you for being with us wherever you're settled in listening to the show. And remember, we're here weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time and available to you as a podcast. Just simply subscribe using your favorite podcatcher. And uh, we'd appreciate while you're in there, maybe give us a rating and review. But remember, you can listen to the show in segment form or the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience. I'd like to bring on board to join Ramya and I here for a wonderful conversation that I think a lot of time people don't really stop to think about unless it definitely impacts you uh, very much so. And uh, really, quite frankly, this impacts people every day, all the time, all of us. Uh, Rhonda Solomon is a PhD student at the University of Toronto. Her dissertation asks where people can go to the bathroom when they're away from home. And she's found that ultimately ableist structure, including policies and institutions, have uh, produced landscapes out there, urban landscapes, that is, um, that disable people with disabilities from that full inclusion in our societies. She's uh, organizing a panel discussion on public toilet um, provisions for people with disabilities to be held in January. And we appreciate that she's here to tell us a little bit about her research and the discoveries going on. Rhonda, I appreciate you joining us here on Kelly and Company. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, Rhonda, tell us a little bit about yourself and the research that you've, you've got in front of us here. Okay, so um, this research started um, sort of as a, as a vague idea several years ago um, when I wrote an undergraduate paper on uh, public toilet provision in Toronto um, and the history of, of uh, toilet provision in Toronto. And it really got me thinking about how, well, there really aren't very many public toilets in Toronto. And when it's uh, relating, relating to people with disabilities, there's even fewer that are actually accessible. So um, my research uh, sort of evolved over uh, throughout my undergrad and my master's and now my PhD, and I'm looking specifically at public toilet provision for people with disabilities, and I'm focusing on children, but really the um, research is for all ages um, because it's an issue that affects all ages it's, um, and all people with all types of different disabilities. So. Um, yeah, I'm a third-year PhD student. I'm about to embark on my my research soon, as soon as I pass ethics review, and then um, yeah, it's that's kind of where I'm I'm at. Okay, can um, can I ask before we carry on? Um, obviously, important topic, but is there any personal reason, any persons in your lives that, that that make you made you see this, or a situation that you knew of or read somewhere about? Uh, and I know I've heard about it in places like Europe, where uh, this has mm-hmm. become a discussion point. Um, for you, uh, what was that inspiration to do this kind of specific work on this subject? So I. Um, suffer from chronic irritable bowel syndrome. And I'm basically like, every day it's like, I need to make sure I'm near a washroom. And um, it's not, uh, uh, so I would say that all different disabilities require different accommodations. And there's no accommodations that is going to be ideal for each type of disabled body. But for me, it was just not so much the design of the washroom, but just the fact that I need them to be there. And um, I also am a neurodiverse individual, and um, I'm used, and I'm I've grown up knowing what it feels like to to be excluded 
from the environment and just um, not to feel like you're a part of society almost. Um, and that feeling of exclusion and of not being um, like everybody else really um, sort of made me realize like or made me want to change this particular problem. Like I can't give you a specific reason why you know, <laughs> public toilet provision specifically, it could have, I guess, gone in a different direction, but this is somehow an, an issue that just, it means a lot to me. Yeah. I think yeah, you said it course. quite well. Exactly. And, <laughs> and you're, you're um, angling it or, you know, bringing it to light, bringing this issue to light in a very specific way with your dissertation. So tell us about your dissertation a little bit and what your research has found uh, so far. Okay, so um, I'm I've just finished my research proposal. It was uh, approved, so I'm now a PhD candidate. Um, so it has not I've not yet published anything. Um, in two years or so, I will have published my my actual uh, dissertation. But in the meantime, um, some of the findings, um, well, okay, I'm uh, were that um, it's well, it's definitely an historical problem. So we're not. This is a, the, the lack of public toilet provision in the cities isn't a modern day problem. Um, it started out of the the the, the uh, existence of public toilets in the city. It started it actually as a very exclusionary endeavor to allow working class men to have access to restrooms in the city. Women were not even considered um, as almost people who needed to who would leave the house and have access to these need need access to these facilities. So. Um, the the sort of the mindset to even why there's public toilets in the city really came out of a very um, sort of um, sexist kind of um, endeavor. Um, over the over the years, it's um, there's been a lot of a lot of pu- these pub- original public toilets have closed down. Um, it's you know uh, reasons why they're not they're not being used properly. They're very expensive to maintain. Um, other such reasons, and um, now public toilets really are seen as kind of um, objects that are very not going to be used properly or just going to be used for for un, um, unacceptable kind of behavior and so there's just the having to provide them is seen as like such a, a controversial issue because of how they're going to potentially be used um, which is why we have so few of public toilets in the city um, when it comes to design of public toilets there's almost even more critical in a way because the design well sort of flows out of the the rest where do we need public toilets and if the city has determined well we don't really need them or we need them only for a very specific population then why pay attention to how these facilities are designed and if you don't pay attention to how they're designed they're ultimately going to end up being exclusionary um exclusionary so uh, for many different bodies um and that's where we're kind of at today where a history of just so much debate and so much angst over these facilities has led to a situation where not only do we not have enough public toilets, they're also very poorly designed. And sure, now we have um, rules, planning, uh, planning uh, rules that state that they have to, um, you know, for uh, disability uh, considerations, they have to be a certain size, a certain configuration. But again, this really is a very narrow-minded understanding of what a disabled body looks like, how a disabled body moves, and what it needs. And so even with these regulations, ultimately, uh, even accessible, in quotes, restrooms are not really, and not for so many different bodies. Um, So that's kind of um, 
a very general summary of what I found, but there are many more specificities that, um, that of course, um, I could discuss if there were uh, more time. Yeah, it's it's a, it's phenomenal because we know as disabled people, um, finding I know as a blind person, just finding a washroom, let alone thinking about the accessibility for people, you know, with 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 disabilities. So it creates the angst that you mentioned. So you don't go out, you don't go do things. You have to think your day out so much more. Inspiration to go do something just like that at the drop of a hat. No, no, hold on a sec. I have to know where and think about. So these are the things that obviously are, are not understood. We we heard more, yeah. and I'm kind of curious, since the pandemic, because so many people, places were shut, and the average person couldn't find a bathroom. People living on the street yeah. uh, couldn't find anywhere uh, to, to use. So it became more to the forefront. I'm wondering, with your work in the meanwhile, as to, has that eclipsed? the needs of the disability community? Has it changed or helped out the policies? Because I'm sure you've ran into some maddening policies when dealing with all of this. Absolutely. So it's very true what you said. Uh, the fact is that many disabled people never are seen by society. They stay at home um, and they don't leave the house because if you, if, we leave the, if you leave the house, where are you going to go if you have to go to the bathroom? And it's not, and it sounds almost maybe from for an outsider's perspective, it's very almost like a trivial issue, but it is very much not, um, because it actually it, it 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 means you're not like a full citizen in society if you're not allowed to participate in the city the way everyone else is able to. And because of the pandemic, it has brought this issue of public toilet provision more into the light. So more people are now all of a sudden think, oh. I can't really leave the house because if I do, like, well, the restaurants are shut and I can't take for granted that I can just go into, let's say, a McDonald's even and, you know, buy something and, or not even and just use the restroom because now the, the restrooms and like McDonald's and Starbucks and et cetera are now locked. So now suddenly more people are like, oh, wait a minute, everything we've taken for granted, this access we've taken for granted is no longer available. And, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, this is what people who have disabilities are experiencing. This inability to not only not be able to leave home at will, but if you do leave home, the anxiety about where are you going to go to the washroom? Mm -hmm. And and some people, um, it's not only a matter of finding the restroom, but if the restroom is not accessible, well, you know, their caretaker may not, you know, it's in, then they sometimes end up having to be changed on the floor or if it's a child, someone's in the back of a vehicle. And suddenly it's like, oh, you know, we've taken for granted this facility, this amenity that has, you know, seemingly been, well, you know, everywhere. We can just go into a cafe and use whatever, but that's not true now. And um, the pandemic really made it clear that not everybody is actually able to just take for granted and be able to go out and, and um, you know, and enjoy the, enjoy the day um, in, and, and just kind of um, in, at leisure. Um, and, um, there are so many bodies that, you know, don't get to, don't get to, um, experience that. And I think the pandemic has made that much more clear as opposed, and in terms of policy, there really hasn't been yet that change in policy. That is a huge, that's, I guess, where ultimately this, my research kind of hits, it hits this sort of like wall almost of like, how do you actually now start to change policy, um, planning policy, building code, um, because that's sort of the final frontier of, okay, maybe now the pandemic has made it more clear that 
you know, there's actually a problem in the city that we don't have enough public restrooms or definitely not accessible, accessible public restrooms. But now how do you actually make things change? How do you change the situation? And that's what hopefully my research hopefully will look at and hopefully will start to, you know, um, make a difference regarding um, the yeah, policies. Well, you've pointed out so many incredible points. Um, and I wondered if we can just really quickly, before we have to let you go, talk about the focus yeah. of children and the unique challenges yeah. that face them when it comes to public um, uh, washroom use. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, originally, I was going to focus my master's uh, work focused on um, all all disabled bodies, but all like adults and children. And then I kind of was realizing that you know what, um, there's a gap in research, and this gap is that it's a very it looks mostly at adult kind of perspectives, and children's voices are really very much not heard. Um, and there's actually that that's a huge that's a huge um, absence in, in academic work um, because children's children's experiences in a way are are kind of unique in that situation because they're often they're often the ones um, having their bodies some things being done to their bodies and um, in the case of restroom it's usually they're having to be put on restroom floors to be changed there's not enough uh, public to- uh, accessible public toilets in their schools there's not enough um, you know when the families want to leave for the day children you know they may have to go only for an hour or two or children are um, before the, you know or, or children yeah. are being changed in the back of the vehicles and that really comes down to like children disabilities face so much social exclusion because of that and their entire development is stunted in a way because of that they're not exposed to the same opportunities as children without disabilities because of the lack of public toilets and so there's this huge like you know it's a huge um gap in 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 civic um infrastructure that um really affects children specifically because of um it affects just their entire development um and that's not necessarily something that's understood um, very Rhonda, well. So hopefully, my, yes. <laughs> we, we have to run. Uh, can you quickly tell us so people can go and check out the uh, panel where to go quickly? Sure. So it's going to be January 24th at 10 a.m. It's going to be online via webinar. It's also going to be um, in person at the U of T. The location that U of T hasn't yet been decided, but um, um, the webinar will um, be available to everyone. And as the date approaches, um, a link, a Zoom link will be provided. Um, at this time, I don't have that yet, but um, if um, people uh, follow me, they could find information. All right, Ron, thank you. Sorry to cut you short on here. What an incredible topic. Thank you for sharing with us and bringing us kind of up to speed. Uh, that was Rhonda Solomon, PhD student at the University of uh, Toronto, whose research uh, uh, focuses on public toilet provisions for people with disabilities. We'll be right back with our book club. Welcome back to Kelly and Company, Romeo Muth and Kelly McDonald, host of the program. Last Tuesday of the month, this is a longer month, though. I have no idea what we're doing here, guys. I'm sorry. What, what do we normally... Oh! Ah, it's that oh, time for the results of curling up with a good book. All right, Ms. Amuthan, take it over. 
And with co-host Glasgow. Yes, it is the book club. And this is our chance and yours to really get into the books, authors, and narrators that we love or don't love. Opportunity for that talk as well. And today's book for discussion is The Diamond Eye. This is by Kate Quinn. It was recommended to us by community reporter Julie Martin, who we welcome back to the show. So, Julie, I'm going to ask you right off the top, as we ask everybody uh, who joins us on our book club, why this book as a recommendation? Um. Well, first and foremost, because it was November, Remembrance Day, and World War Two in particular is a genre that I really enjoy um, learning about. Um, and I I really like the Kate Quinn books, all of the ones that I've read of hers, because until I read her books, I didn't realize what, how the roles that some women played um, in World War Two to the extent that they did. Like it was, mm-hmm. you know, we know about land girls and Rosie the Riveter and, you know, like, I mean, women kept the country together in England for sure. Right. Um, but the, the people in her books, the women in her books really made a difference on the front line kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think this one in particular, because it is about a Russian um, sniper, female sniper, um, it just gives that perspective that it wasn't just the Germans and the British and the Americans. We sometimes forget that, right? Right. During, were fighting during in the that time of World War Two, exactly, yeah. and and I, I didn't plan to start with the ending or with the conclusion or uh, with the facts, <laughs> but really because it is based on uh, true events, uh, true women, right, uh, Mila, yeah, and and all the other kind of supporting evidence that this author went through to dig up put it all together. And of course, she took some creative liberty uh, to fill in some gaps. But most of this was absolutely true and based on Mila's memoir. So I want to talk yeah. a little bit about this perspective bit, okay? Because perspective is such a key part of getting into this book. Um, you heard from Mila. You heard from other characters. You heard from First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, you hear from the marksman character throughout the book. And those are just the people we hear from firsthand, if you will. But you also get to hear about the soldiers, right? The Soviet soldiers, uh, civilians. You get to hear from about Nazi Germany and all these other things. So, Kelly, I want to ask you, was there one perspective that kind of impacted you uh, over others, more than others, just something you tuned into? No, every every perspective I was given, I, I if if I go back and think, is there anyone I would have liked to have heard their perspective? No, um, her uh, ex husband or uh, well, att- want to be ex husband uh, <laughs> as she tried to get him to to do a divorce that he wouldn't give her. Um, you know, I really don't think there's any other character that I needed to hear from. There were there were moments where you felt maybe a little bit. I felt a little bit too much maybe from certain people, 
but I don't think I would a chance ever cutting back any of that. I, I found it lended so much to perspective. I tend to read books where you'll get those different, especially uh, some of my, you know, <laughs> detective books or, you know, with yeah. criminal characters where you will get maybe a whole uh, um, chapter from one perspective, another chapter. I, I enjoy that because you get that viewpoint of that person of, the other characters. Um, so no, but I wouldn't have added any others. I didn't need any others. Didn't have a want for any of the others. Okay. Yeah. And, and I'm curious about you too, Julie, if there's one perspective that uh, you loved hearing from, didn't want to hear as much from, or anybody that you're like, you know, if it was written this way, that would have made it interesting. No, I think Kelly said it perfectly. Um, everybody's perspective really went to the book. I mean, even her, Alexia, her abusive yeah. husband, I mean, he was such a misogynist. Um, but it was, if we had not seen that interaction, we, I don't think I would have understood her drive as much, perhaps, mm -hmm. as to why she became um, a sniper. Yeah, it um, almost provides and, that link, I, doesn't it? How you go from librarian to yeah. sniper. Yeah. And that, I loved that she kept doing her dissertation all the way through the front line. I know. You know, it was good. Yeah. That was a beautiful link. I yeah. mean, obviously there is this, um, her missing her her kid, her son, and him growing up mm -hmm. without her and all these the months. Leaves. Exactly. Sending right? the leaves from the front to him. Yeah. But the dissertation was something that was there at the start. It was part of her identity before she went to war, and, and it followed her through all the way to the end, which was really beautiful. Is there anything else yes. about this, quote, girl sniper, right, who I find you know, she has this vengeance, she has this enormous personality. She lived by the science of shooting, not the intuition. That, that was incredible to me um she found she loved she lost rifles <laughs> not just people but the rifles yeah. um and she there was this thing that kept coming back that she saw the face of every man she shot and killed uh over 300 mm -hmm. men so julie was mm -hmm. there something about that that you found you know unbelievable or surreal like I found a lot of this stuff very difficult to digest especially knowing that she this is real a, a librarian turned sniper yeah um it, it, the conditions that she you know when they hunker down in a nest for a couple of three days and they would eat dry tea and sugar, uh, suck on sugar cubes like just the absolute conditions it put, that they endured um, but it really brought home something that um, an uncle of mine my uncle Stan I remember my brother years ago when we were kids saying to him did you ever shoot anybody in the war and uncle Stan mm -hmm. said yeah and my brother said oh that's so cool and uncle Stan looked at him and he said no Kevin it's not and I think that it drives home that no matter who it is that's going to war, they're not going because to fight and kill people that they hate. They're doing it to protect those that they love. Yep. And they will do whatever it takes to protect those that they love. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 
the motivation of having an enemy was the only thing that even allowed her to do this, right? Like, there were so many moments where she had to remember these are enemies or convince people, but these are enemies. Uh, the Well, we, we would con- hear that in many other books, right? And, yeah. And stories that the yeah. faceless enemy, because of the ability of, of being able to shoot bomb or whatever, where you never knew, you never saw, you didn't know if you actually, like she mm-hmm. remarked, that there were people that she'd go and collect things from to, to keep track of her kills because the government said so. Um, but in all essence, probably it was certainly more than the uh, final total tabulation right. of, of kills. It, it, I think, was to set the difference that so many people think you just take your target and shoot. And you'd have to think that nowadays with technology, anyone in that position totally sees practically right into the soul of the person you're shooting, that you can see uh, yeah. right into their eyes. Before, but at this time, you may not have been able to see even some of the detail where there was a lot more killings where you just, you didn't. The other thing, Ramya, that I really want to note that I, I find surprised me the most in the book was that women were called upon and not, not shunned in duty, called upon by the Soviet Union at the time mm-hmm. for war. It wasn't, yeah. oh, well, this yeah. is man's work. This is, it was not deemed She that. mentioned that in the communism. Aspect, Several yeah. times in this, and it you know wasn't mm-hmm. like oh well we're just running out of people, ladies. You know you're up next. It was they yeah, were yeah. welcome to uh, to be a part of the war, and yet the irony is there was so mm-hmm. much misogyny. Uh, absolutely, yes. oh yes, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Even on the front line, still so much misogyny, yeah. so much Filth. stereotypical. Filth. Exactly, this is what we can expect from yeah. women. Uh, but yet, yeah, you were on the front line fighting. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about that because I had a couple very triggering moments. You know, every time Alexei told her to jump for this or jump for that, anytime he came in the picture, to be honest, it was just unbelievable to me. Um, But she paints it. Kate Quinn paints such a vivid picture. And it was not just through these direct comments of Alexei. It was through uh, notes and, you know, men all around. Anything for you, Julie, that stood out as a moment or even the opposite where Mila overcame, felt empowered through the misogyny? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, 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 the one that's really come into mind is where on the ship when he, uh, her husband thought she was there because she was a medic, not a sharpshooter. And she whipped that gun out of his hand before he even knew what was going on. And that made me feel like, good for you. I'm really proud of you for doing that. Mm -hmm. Like, show him. You show him. Um, I, I don't know. It was so... I think there was so much other things to um, kind of process, especially with, you know, like they had to have a minder when they were in the States and, you know, they were worried about people defecting and, and things like that, that it just reminds you that people really, and they're still living like that. Yeah. Wasn't it's just still, back then. We're still. Exactly. It's just that we were seeing such a focused scenario, right? Women on the front line, um, on her A game, you know, it has a whole platoon yeah. under her, and yet still the kinds of things that she was facing. Yeah. Uh, question for was, you. Sorry. Go ahead, Julie. No, I was just going to say one thing that 
um, when she wore that yellow ball gown, even though it displayed all the scars on her back, I thought as a woman that was extremely brave. Yes. And it just led more to my admiration of her that she was just an all-around in every aspect of her life, quite Mm -hmm. the brave woman. Yeah, and and this leads me to my next um, point, too, which was that for me, the bravery was every time she came out of the hospital, every time she went to the hospital and felt that survivor's guilt, first of all, when she learned that people, her men were dying, uh, some of her men didn't Mm -hmm. make it, and then she would push past that injury and continue back onto the battlefield, back onto the battlefield. She just didn't want to leave. And that was really uh, highly emotional, uh, I found. You know, every time she lost somebody or lost a bit of herself, all throughout the book, I kept forgetting and she kept reminding us that, you know, she has hearing damage and other injuries that she's fighting through to continue yeah. going with this. And there's a lot of that kind of loss, right? Not just the the injured and the dead, but a lot of loss through war. Kelly, were there any moments that felt um, emotional to you that you could think of? Well, I, I mean, I find through the whole book, um, the different characters themselves, I thought there was a moment with, with everyone. I think the whole idea of having to go there or, and, and building up such a hate um, because of the abuses and the atrocities, I think for me, that is always just a, an amazing, you know, someone who transforms and what this makes people become is just always upsetting because it changes you. Uh, and, and it's just... It, it diverts people's course. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, final question of the and day. I think, okay, we'll get to nope, it in two sorry, seconds. Yes, ahead, Julie. Um, yeah. No, go ahead. No, 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 no. I please go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna ask if if I was the only one who was completely taken aback when uh, Alexei shot her at the end. Spoiler alert. I gasped out loud. Yeah, same. Okay. Like, I literally gasped out. I did not see that coming yeah. at all. I'm glad he I did. I didn't like that. I'm glad she got him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I didn't like that creative license, I must admit. Um, I felt uh, other ways he should have been showed up in the story, like the, the gun exhibition, uh, those kinds of things. I I think mm-hmm. I know she added that as the writer as something. Yes. And I just felt, eh, don't need that. I didn't Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the difference yeah. between writing like a full-on nonfiction memoir biography of someone versus saying, hey, this is based on true events. Uh, here are the facts at the end. But, you know, this is written like a story, right? And that yes. was definitely a twist. Definitely a twist. Yeah, it was a twist I didn't see coming. And I, I, I really liked how at the end when she was in the garden and chasing um, the sniper, how... Um, she suddenly realized how in tune she was to her senses. Yes. Because in the beginning, it was all about the science, wasn't it? Yes. And the shooting. And then, so I thought that was very interesting to me. To develop war senses, yeah. The spider And level playing field. Julie, thank you so much. I really appreciate this recommendation. It was on our bucket list to read. So appreciate you uh, bringing it to us. My pleasure. Julie Martin, our community reporter and recommender of this book. Next month, we're going to be reading one by Stephen King. I think I'll tell people after the break, Kels.
Okay, doke. And we will wrap up the show and see what's ahead on our show. And now with Dave Brown, a couple other things to tell you about. So we'll be right back. talk about next well i can't say next month's book we'll tell you about that in a moment when we uh, get a get to tell you what it is but i first want to mention that our friends from the tripping on air podcast are getting into the holiday spirit they're giving away a ton of prizes as uh, greg was telling us about on the program the other day and this is all part of the 2022 ms holiday gift guide go to ami.ca slash toa contest to review that list of prizes and to enter for your chance to win the contest closes december 1st at 11:59 p.m et folks so get in there very little time left one set of entries per day and winners will be uh, contacted by email and listed on the tripping on air instagram page okay ramya well tell us what our book next month will be uh, oh my the gosh. month after Yes, exactly. Okay, so heads up, we are reading the next book through December into January and discussing it at the end of January. By then, we will be on TV as well, so it's going to be fun. Uh, This is a classic, right? This is Misery by Stephen King. It was released in 2002. It was recommended to us by Jacob Shymansky. We finally roped him in on the book club. It's available on CELA, C-E-L-A library dot C-A, in human narrated audio. Misery Chastain was dead. Paul Sheldon had just killed her with relief, with joy. Misery had made him rich. She was the heroine heroine of a string of bestsellers, and now he wanted to get on to some real writing. That's when the car accident happened, and he woke up in pain in a stranger's uh, strange bed. But it wasn't the hospital. Annie Wilkes had pulled him from the wreckage, brought him to a remote mountain home, splinted and set his mangled legs. The good news was that Annie was a nurse and has painkilling drugs. The bad news was that she was Paul's number one fan. And when she found out what Paul had done to Misery, she didn't like it. She didn't like it at all. Now he had to bring Misery back to life or else. Dot, dot, dot. We're discussing this on January 31st, 2023. So check out the book with us. It's going to be a good one. Wow. You get more than two months on this, folks. I know. Wow. You're going to need it because it's very disturbing. Uh, yeah, if I mean, and I think a lot of us out there will say, "Oh, yeah, I've, I've seen the movie, I've read it, I've That's seen the right. play, whatever it might be." So, um, really delve into that. We'll have some time with it and and have some fun, definitely talking um, about it, uh, folks. Remember, you can give us a call one eight six six five zero nine four five four five if you have a book recommendation or just want to reach out to Kelly and Company. Give us permission to use your message on air. We'd love to hear from you. One eight six six five zero nine four five four five. Feedback at ami.ca via email and on Twitter at ami audio. Paul Daniel joins us. He's one of the producers over at Now at Day Brown. Their program on AMI TV starting at nine a.m. in the morning. Good day, Paulie D. How are you? I'm fine, Kelly Mac. How are you doing? All right, that's one of your favorite okay. books, right? Misery. <laughs> well, no, that's uh, well. Oh no, sorry, sorry that's what you bring so... here when you show up here. Okay, <laughs> isn't that one of your favorites of, of Stephen uh, King genre? 
Uh, no, actually, actually, it's not. It's, you know, my favorite Stephen King novel is 112263. Ah. Uh, actually, I feel like we could guess that. That's a heavy book. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really true. You could really <laughs> guess it, right? They never fool you, don't they? Here's, on tomorrow's show, there is, there is a show tomorrow. Our column is Shane Baker will talk more about the importance of a mental health break. Journalist John Lafke will join us to discuss his general thoughts on the upcoming International Day of Disabled Persons and how the media covers these days of observance. Very and Derek nice. Lackey, our community reporter in Winnipeg, will tell us about the River Exhibition Park Winter Wonderland show, which is considered the province's largest drive-through light show. Hmm. That'll be great. And they're always fun mm-hmm. to talk about because now it's such sure. a thing, um, the drive-through mm-hmm. shows, yeah. especially since the pandemic. I also love the take. Uh, I'm anxious to hear what your journalist says pertaining because a lot of time there just isn't coverage. Thanks, Paul. Take care, Cal. Paul Daniel joins us uh, from uh, Now with Day Brown, their show on at 9 a.m. in the morning on AMI-tv, available as a podcast. While well, Ramya, halfway through the week tomorrow, we'll begin things at 2 p.m. Eastern. That's right. Talk then. I'll betcha. Uh, Folks, with snow on the ground in parts of the country, Thanksgiving is over. It means holiday programming ahead. Greg David, he'll be bringing us what we can check out on TV. Mary Mammoliti has a foodie gift guide for the season. Always fun when she brings that information to us. We'll talk to her tomorrow about that. Ryan Delahanty brings us news and events from Nova Scotia. And, of course, Bill's back as he begins another edition of The Buzz here on Kelly and Company. We'll talk to you tomorrow starting at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Always wonderful to have you with uh, with us. On behalf of our technician today, Matt Agnew, Ramya Muthan, I'm Kelly McDonald. We're waving at you. Take care. On Monday's program, we were talking with Mark Rankin about the Argus II and some of the experiences that people who have had it implanted in their in their eyes uh, have had and kind of our own thoughts. And, you know, it's hard because obviously listening in, some of you out there may have even had the procedure. And I know myself, I think it's really admirable people saying, hey, I'd like to try it. Of course, Maybe you'll be that person that something really cool happens. Something gives you something that maybe you've never had or you had and lost it. Um, I'm not suggesting for a moment, and, I, and I, no one on the segment was that that's the only reason people are going to get in there and, and want to do something like that. But I certainly know that if it were me, I would be hoping, oh man, may it give me back a little of something. But also being a part of advancing science Pretty incredible, pretty wild. And when I made reference to the old $6 million man show during the segment, all I kept thinking about was my time as a child and how much something like his bionic eye would be amazing to have. Not even just to read a postage stamp at 200 yards away, as they would say on the show, but just to be able to see, to maybe drive a car, even in the one eye, just to get around easier. So I have to think, as I knew some people who were having the procedure, and as I mentioned on the show, one of them even said to me, would you ever consider doing it? Would you ever, do you want to? 
And I know at the time they could have talked to somebody and very possibly I would have been in there. But I had to think about at the time I could see enough that it made a difference to me if you took that away. And I kept thinking, if I'm thinking this, the people who are undergoing this procedure and others, so many others that have advanced science, they have to be thinking the same thing. And a lot of us say no. I said no. Or others said, you know what? I'm ready to give this a try. Hopefully it's a start of something that maybe in 25 years, when other people have the same implant, big things will be happening. It'll be a regular surgery, a procedure to give eyesight back to people. And I know that you never know going forward. We don't know what those experiences will do for science in, in the future. But as I said, fedoras off to people who can take that chance. I always say that about people who can quit a job and find something else with that confidence than being in the disability world. Often we don't have or feel we have that luxury to do so. So really wonderful as we were having that conversation, it brought back a lot of thoughts and people who I know who did make that step and some right now having some problems because they made the step. Some, you know, really happy they were a part of science moving it forward in history.